This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Professor Lacey Ford. He's formerly dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at USC, and he is currently scholar-in-residence at USC's Institute for Southern Studies. And we're going to be talking about Empowering Communities, his latest book, and it's about how electric cooperatives transformed rural South Carolina. Lacey, welcome back to the journal. It's good to be here, Walter. Well, people know you from your your two prize-winning books, Deliver Us from Evil and Origins of Southern Radicalism. They might not realize that you spent a lot of your academic life writing about South Carolina's economic conditions in the in the 19th century uh, and the work that you and Peter Kerklanis did. Most of it was in the form of articles. So dealing with the economic impact of the co-ops and electricity is not really anything new for you. No, it's not. In fact, I, I published two journal articles on the economy of South Carolina and its history of economic development in the 20th century. And so this fit right into it. In addition to that, and where where I really got interested in, in all of that was for most of my career on the faculty at USC, I taught the second half of the South Carolina history class. There was someone else teaching the first half of that class that, uh, sitting right across the table from me. So I was teaching the second half, uh, which brought us into the 20th century down to the present. And I began to see some patterns of things in, in the state's economy uh, that I wanted to explore further. So it really... Uh, being involved with writing this book uh, has really been very consistent with what I've been interested in. It's a real eye-opener. It should be for many people. Much of the information, not about the co-ops, but about South Carolina, the world of South Carolina before World War II, is something I know about, you know about, but I'm not sure our listeners do. It was literally a dark world. Yes, it was very literally a dark world. And just to, to paint a little bit of a larger picture for it, South Carolina, be, between World War I and World War II, was a state fa- facing a challenge of underdevelopment, it, with the exception of just a few places in the state where, uh, where there was a s- substantial amount of industrialization. And the challenges they faced was that there, there were very limited electricity to towns and urban areas, inadequate schooling opportunities, and not a good highway system. And none of that boded well for the state's economic development going forward. During the 1920s, the state made some major strides that they didn't always follow up on thereafter. They made some major strides in education with what's known as the 601 Bill of of 1924, in which the state pledged to pay for six months of schooling if the local district would pay for one, and there had been not that kind of direct aid from the state uh, to the local districts in the past. And that really improved, in the short term, uh, schooling in the the underdeveloped areas. And people don't realize there were literally some school districts that only ran for a a month or two. Exactly. Uh, They only ran for a month or two. Even that bill didn't guarantee but seven months. Now, some of the more economically well-off districts went eight or nine. There were, of course, only 11 grades. Uh, there probably weren't 11. There were 10 in some yeah. places. Well, we had more than 1,000 school districts. <laughs> yes, and we had 1,000 school districts. I mean, literally, one-room schoolhouse might be a district. In 1929, uh, the legislature passed a highway bond bill, which the amount of bonds they were willing to sell was, was many times the state budget of 1929, which it would, it would be a staggering thing for a legislature to undertake that today. But they did it because there were literally counties with no more than one paved road. And the state was not connected. And even through the Great Depression, the state continued to put money in building roads. So we would have a, a rudimentary road system, but a road system... Uh, worth something. Now, there were roads in the Piedmont where the counties had tax money to, to build them, but 
This was the first statewide system. So that had pushed the state along. But still, going into the 30s, when when the Great Depression hit, most of the state was literally in the dark, as you say. And that highway bill in 1929 was quite controversial. It was fought by the upcountry because they had already paved their roads. And it was engineered by the senior, particularly senators from the low country, who uh, they didn't have any tax base in their counties. And this was a way to get, get roads paved. And it ended up being a case where they had all the, all the state judges on bonk. You want to talk about that for a minute? Oh, yes. There was a pattern of uneven development where the Pied- Piedmont had a decent road system. They had most of the textile mills at that time. They had a tax base that would sustain it. But the low country and the PD had, had virtually nothing. So there was a political alliance forged between the low country and the PD with some very prominent legislators involved, Senator Richard Dick Jeffries of Colleton, a name still known to, to people around today for the building, Senator Edgar Brown of Barnwell. They put together this package and maneuvered it very skillfully uh, through the legislature to build roads in the low country. The upcountry uh, politicians were so against it that they took it to court, and it had to be uh, decided in the 1930s by the justices of the Supreme Court sitting on Bonk. And they essentially ordered uh, Governor Olin Johnston, who was from Anderson and representing the upcountry on this issue, that the bill was constitutional and we had to start building roads, and, and we did. And really, in the wisdom of hindsight, sectionalism in the state can be a dangerous thing. And it was, it was in that case because you, you had to have roads. Once those initiatives were underway, it became even more glaring that the same sort of dichotomy that existed in roads existed in electric power. Cities and places near cities that had textile mills uh, were generally served by private utilities or an investor-owned utility. If you were in the, in the Piedmont, it was going to be Duke Energy. If it were somewhere around Columbia, you were probably going to be uh, with SCE&G or the city of Charleston and a little bit over in the PD. But a good three-fourths of the land area and a lot of the population were really without electricity. And there were some small municipal power plants. Yes. Greenwood, for example. Yes, uh, and I think Myrtle Beach or Georgetown had a... Uh, yeah, Anderson had one, I think, and uh, uh, Rock Hill for a while. Well, Anderson actually advertised itself as the electric city. <laughs> that's, that's, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, and, and, and part of that electric, uh, having that electricity, is there were interurban railways in the upstate. I mean, transportation was not a problem if you mm-hmm. got, that's correct. got above the fall line. If you go back and look at the WPA guide to South Carolina and those side trips that they had, you know, had to get there, it's amazing when they describe the roads and they're saying, well, this is gravel, this is sand, and we're talking about officially state roads, not county roads. And so you want tourism, but uh, you almost needed to make sure you had a wrecker coming along to pull you out of the ditch. <laughs> and, you know, what, what tourism there was before this were very wealthy people from the north riding a train down to Aiken and perhaps you know, getting off there and staying somewhere, riding a train down to Charleston and, get, and getting out yeah. there. Yeah. And the special folks from Mr. Baruch had his own <laughs> <laughs> spur line to uh, Hobcall Barony. Bernard Baruch, great financier, native of Camden. Advisor to presidents. All, all the way down to, to Jack Kennedy. When I was dean of arts and sciences, I had the privilege of touring uh, the Baruch house down there on the property. And there's a book of guest signatures there. It includes Franklin Roosevelt. It includes Winston Churchill. And there they are, just yeah. signing the book. Yeah. So Basically, if you had money, travel was fine. You could get to Charleston by railroad, uh, and Charleston became a very popular vacation spot for the Well Hill folks, just like Camden and and uh, and Aiken. Uh, but you sure didn't drive around. Is to to bring this home to 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 some of our listeners. When my father returned from service in the United States Army right after World War II, there was still in his rural community, and he lived in a rural community. There was still no electricity. 
at all. And, and that was uh, York County. In York, York County, yeah. Now, there were some roads in, in the far up country, but there, were, there was still no electricity. Folks, I don't, you know, they just can't imagine that. Our friend, the late Lewis Jones from up at uh, Walford, gave a noted address to the South Carolina Library. And in it, he, he said, when the sun went down, South Carolina was no different from medieval Europe. Well, you know, Walter, that's one of the things that people who have a chance to read the book will, will find out is we did interviews with a lot of people who were later served by the cops, and they talked about they were just in the dark. You thought about what you did between sunrise and sunset, and anything after that was by kerosene lantern or candlelight. It was very difficult. The kerosene lanterns were were smoky and, and bad, and they didn't provide that much light. It was a daylight world. And one of the people described it pretty well. You walked outside at that time, and there was no light. I mean, there, there weren't street lights. There weren't cars passing. There weren't outdoor lights on in people's yards like there are now if you walk outside at night. All there is is however much light you're getting from the moon and the sky at that particular time. And think of everything else electricity would provide. Heating, cooling yes. today, but in those days, heating. You didn't have an electric pump for your well. It had to be pumped by hand. And certainly... Um, modern convenience, no radios, although people did have car radio. In the rural areas, they listened to their car, car radios. Yes. But Lewis was right in, in telling the story. Poverty is part of the problem. Uh, but the other thing is you might have money and live in a small town, but you didn't have electricity either. That, yes, that, that's true. It, it wasn't entirely about poverty. One of the things that we, comes through in the book uh, from interviews we did with people who remembered the time before they, they had electricity was what hard work it was. You had to literally, without pumps, without electric pumps, you probably had to pull your water up out of the well. And then if you wanted to use it to take a bath, you had to chop wood, build a fire, and heat the water. And that's why people used to talk about Saturday night baths. People weren't going to do that more than once a week, generally speaking. If they did it. If they did it once a week, that's right. And uh, speaking of that, washing clothes. Same thing. You had, to, you had to wash clothes. You had to wring them out by hand or through a roller of some sort. And you had to hang them out to dry. And then if they were to be ironed, it had to be with an iron heated at the fireplace right. or on top of the wood stove. On top of the wood stove. And uh, everybody describes the wood stove. Of course, you know, it had to be fueled by the wood that you cut and brought in. That you know, it was warm right there where it was, but boy, it doesn't radiate out very far. And so you were clustered around the wood stove, which was almost too hot if you got close to it. But it yeah. didn't. It didn't. The heat didn't transfer very far away. The bringing of electricity to people who had did not have it before. There was was a momentous thing. There was a real social dimension to it as over time more and more townspeople had electricity. So people from the country, when they went into town, mostly on Saturday, saw that other people had these things that they didn't. And a lot of the country people that we interviewed said, you know, it, it changed how we thought of ourselves when we got electricity. That's one way pre-World War II, that people could get around South Carolina is we were crisscrossed by railroads. Exactly. Uh, there was something like 100 trains came through Columbia every day. Uh, there are rural families in Lake Huntington County that I know uh, subscribe to the Atlanta Constitution, the Post and Courier, or then the News and Courier, and they would get those papers on the day that they were published because the effectiveness of the railroads. And people would take the train to come to Columbia to shop. There weren't any rural malls to go to. It <laughs> yeah, was, and I, yeah, that's exactly right. Lacey, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And today I'm talking with Lacey Ford about his latest book, Empowering Communities, How Electric Cooperatives Transformed Rural South Carolina. All right. Let's talk about the process of getting electricity into South Carolina. And we certainly have got to start with the New Deal. Yes, we have to start with a new deal. Getting electricity into rural areas could not have happened 
without federal financial support. That's really what it boiled down to. And when Roosevelt was elected in 32 and assumed the presidency in 1933, he and his advisors, they, they had the challenge at that point of pulling the whole nation out of the Depression, not just rural areas, but urban areas and industrial areas as well. But rural areas really needed fundamental work uh, to come into the era of a modern economy. And the, the finances of generating electricity make it such that you need a density of population to make a profit off of electricity. And the, the rural areas just didn't have that density. So Roosevelt proposed, and over several years negotiated through Congress, the Rural Electrification Program, where the federal government would pay essentially for building a delivery system, putting up the poles and running the wires. And believe me, that's not a simple task in the 1930s. I don't mean passing it politically, but people who had to go out and do the work to do it. That was was quite a task with the equipment they had and some of the terrain they had uh, to, to traverse. But that there were federal loans available. When he start, first started campaigning in uh, the early 1930s, South Carolinians got on board with Roosevelt, and they were pushing for electrification. And so they, they had a commission that they sent to Washington, uh, I think 64 or 65 individuals, including state legislators. Senator Jeffries was one. Uh, at that time, Strom Thurmond was a state senator. Yes, yes. Uh, and key members of the House and Governor Ibra Blackwood. And they got to Washington to talk about electrification. And the word was, well, you've got to have a state entity that can accept federal funds. And they didn't have one. No, and they had, they had to work to create a public service authority which, which could do that. And they did that pretty pretty effectively and efficiently. They had one by, what, 36? I believe it was in place. In 1936, it was in place. This, the whole state of South Carolina was, had a bit of a different psychology than it then than it does now, and that is that, and I'll just put this bluntly, its politicians were not merely willing but eager to receive funding and encouragement uh, from the federal government. They did not want any advice or action about race relations in South Carolina, but in terms of anything else, they were very open to federal involvement. And that's why you had such an array of, of politicians who were willing to go to Washington and seek funding. In 1932, when Roosevelt was elected, it was known that he was going to promote several large electrification uh, redevelopment. TVA was one. There was another one out west. South Carolina, Santee Cooper, or what would become Santee Cooper uh, in the Low Country, was kind of out there, but it was it was amorphous. It hadn't really really gelled yet, and it took a while. Even once they got the authority, the the South Carolina Public Service Authority, which by the way is the official name for Santee Cooper, to get that project funded. One of the challenges of getting it funded <clears throat> is that it didn't. The, the electricity, its benefits were not going to extend across state lines. And some of the uh, Roosevelt advisors were worried that, therefore, it couldn't be called a national project. And for them to put money into it w was going to be iffy. Not to mention the fact that there were a lot of people, particularly fairly well-rich would be the best word, affluent Northerners who uh, came to South Carolina on vacation. They were members of hunt clubs in the low country and investors in, in uh, investor-owned utilities uh, because of their wealth. And they were discouraging Roosevelt. And Santee Cooper was a, was a geologically challenging project, too. So it was, it, it, it was difficult. And United States Senator Jimmy Burns from South Carolina, who was a pretty close advisor to Roosevelt, wrote several very humorous letters to the president. One of them, he says, don't be deceived by these people who are lobbying against the project. They're really more concerned about dividends than they are about ducks. And <laughs> he, he had these little phrases he would slip in. Uh, and now probably a lot of these people who were lobbying against it were also Burns' friends, but Burns was looking out for the state, which was the approval. And finally, finally, 
they got the Santee Cooper project off the ground. I believe it was not completed until 1942. It was approved in 36, and then they were taken to court for three years That's right. by the private power companies. And it, eventually, it was cleared by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1939. They broke ground, and they cleared all of that area with Lake Marion, Lake Moultrie. They cleared all of that. At one time, I could give you the statistics on how many lumber, feet yeah. of lumber they, they cleared. Uh, and they had created the dams, the diversion canal, everything within about two and a half years. And it was fully operational by February 1942. And, and that was critical in some ways because it, it supplied a lot of electricity to the Charleston Navy Yard, uh, which became very active during World War II and to the McAloy steel plating uh, manufacturing facility down there in Charleston, uh, which was very active during World War II as well. All right. Lacey, we've got Santee Cooper, a publicly owned utility, producing electricity. Now, yeah, it can serve the, the Navy Yard down in Charleston and the big aluminum plant. Both of them were you know, defense issues. But how is it going to get electricity to somebody over in Indian Town or... Andrews or Pelion? And well, and, and that's a great question. And the ultimate resolution of this, because, you know, Santee Cooper didn't really have adequate markets for its electricity after we geared down from the, from the wartime. But people realized, I think the, uh, the newly formed electric cooperatives in state realized that they needed a supplier other than the private power companies. Initially, when they were formed, they had to purchase electricity at a designated price from the investor-owned utilities. So a, a cooperative didn't build its own power plant? No, and, and they, they still don't. Yeah. They, they are a distribution mechanism and, a, and a, a customer service mechanism, and they have to purchase electricity. A consulting firm was brought in to examine the situation, and it recommended that the electric cooperatives, which were Numerous in the low country in particular, because those were where the rural areas, low country and PD, purchased their electricity indirectly. They formed a purchasing thing called the Central Electric Cooperative, uh, which does nothing but purchase and distributes power from Santee Cooper, which generates it. And that is, that is still true today, basically. And they are able to purchase that electricity uh, cheaper than they can buy it in, in most all instances uh, from the investor and utilities. Without Santee Cooper, the electric cooperatives of South Carolina would not have had an independent source of electricity to purchase. Okay. Well, they had a close relationship early on, and of course, in more recent years, that has been a little bit fraught. There are occasional we, 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 tensions, we, we, yes. We, we'll, 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 we'll get to that later, because I'm still thinking about the co-ops. They're building all these power lines. Where are they getting the money? They qualify to get money from the, from the federal government under a National Electric Rural Cooperative Act. And the money comes in from them. They can build the the lines the the distribution lines through the rural areas and that that was what you needed the subsidy for there's not enough demand in those rural areas to generate a profit and therefore the the private companies are are not going to be able to do it but the federal government came in offered this money legally through the cooperatives had to be formed and they had to ask for it and they, it was monitored pretty carefully and they built a distribution system through the rural areas of South Carolina, and by doing so, literally empowered, turned the power on in those communities. And this is right after World War II. Yes. Mostly between 1946, I think the last uh, electric cooperative was formed in 1952. And so in that period, they were really going like gangbusters. How many cooperatives are there today in South Carolina? I believe there are 20. And 18 of those, 17 or 18 of those, I believe, are part of the electric cooperatives of South Carolina. They're entity a statewide that helps helps them act together. Two or three of them are independent. Uh, and But that's fine, too. Having spent a lot of time driving the roads of rural South Carolina, even in the uh, 20th and 21st centuries, yeah, the power lines are running down the road, 
but the residents or the barn may be a mile off the highway. Now, if that's my house, do I have to pay to have the line put in, or does does the co-op? In, in almost every instance, the electric cooperative can run that line, and they did. They did a lot of those. There are some very, I'll call them entertaining. They probably weren't entertaining to the people who were having to do it. Of the difficulties they encountered, uh, putting in poles across swamps, uh, dealing with dogs. I mean, <laughs> you've got some good stories. How about pulling some stories out of your book there? One of the most difficult things they had to do was to run line through run lines through swampy areas. And anybody who drives around the Low Country or the PD region in South Carolina know you go through a lot of swamps and low lying areas. And what they would do actually is they three or four men would be out there working, sometimes five. They would take the lightest person and ask them to walk to see how far they could get without getting bogged down. And that person would actually get bogged down, and then they would have to sort of pull themselves out and crawl back, <laughs> and they'd know how far they could go. And then they'd have to bring in some sort of special equipment or, or wait till it was drier to, to go. Well, I was going to say, how are they, they going to maneuver a pole into that muck? And, you know, they maneuvered poles with literally with manpower in most cases. It wasn't until probably the 60s that they had much help placing poles. Uh, now, as you, if, if you look at a pole go up today, they can do it in no time flat. They bring in all kind of equipment, have it pick it up, stick it down in the ground, and then you have to, yeah. right after thunderstorms, you see that a lot. But that was not the case then. Uh, working the lines, there's a chapter in here, working, working the lines was difficult. It's dangerous work because not only because of swamps and falls and poles that might fall on you, but electricity is very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. And it's, it's especially difficult to work with in a, in a rough environment. And I think that the workers were trained and were basically very careful, but there were still some, some tragic accidents that occurred as lines were being put up. The co-ops maintain their own power lines. Is that correct? They do. And one of the jobs that their trade association, the Electric Cooperatives of South Carolina, is responsible for is they bring in uh, expert trainers to train them on everything that the workers for these cooperatives do. They have meetings here in Columbia. They have meetings out at each co-op and where workers are required. They have manuals. Uh, they're required to go through so much training and retraining and refresher courses and it is a lot safer thing to do today than it was when these lines were put up and in the early years when they were working on them. Well, providing the power, since the majority of their power does come from Santee Cooper, uh, they realized in the 50s that the hydroelectric power, the dam there down in the low country, wasn't going to produce enough electricity. And so they, they began building fossil fuel plants to, to generate the the power. Uh, yes, uh, Santee Cooper, uh, where the electric cooperatives purchase around 70, 80 percent of their power from Santee Cooper still, uh, they operated a, a number of coal fired plants around the state. The one that I've probably seen the most is up in Ori County. I think they're closed that down now. But yeah, The one right there at Andrews. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. right. And that, that's been a challenge. It, that's a that's a nationwide challenge uh, with how to generate electricity w with less environmental damage. And we may come to this at the end. You can generate it with very very little side effects at, through nuclear plants as long as there's not a major accident, and then you've got an environmental catastrophe. And that's been a one of the debates. Uh, well, in the in the 1970s. Again, to generate power that was needed, Santee Cooper went in with South Carolina Electric and Gas up in Jenkinsville and in Fairfield County and was was a partner in the construction of that plant to provide electricity for their customers. That's still an important source of electricity for both Dominion customers and electric cooperative customers in the Midlands area. Lacey, you think that's the segue to the economic disaster of... The last 10 years? <laughs> it's good enough, yes. Okay. I toss the ball to you. Well, there's a whole chapter that 
the uh, co-author helped me on with this book because he was he was had more time to go through the newspapers than I did. All right, and your co- your co-author is uh, Jared Bailey. He was a former honest college student at the University of South Carolina, and uh, he was brought in uh, to help me while I was still dean trying to finish this up because there were several stories breaking, and one of them was the failure of the nuclear expansion at Jenkinsville, that South Carolina electric and gas with uh, Santee Cooper as a, as, a, as a major minor partner, 40 45%, were trying to complete. There have been as I understand it, some some major technological breakthroughs with uh, nuclear power in recent years that make it even more efficient and valuable, but at the same time constructing an effective facility to generate it on any particular piece of land is a very challenging project. All right. Now, wasn't there a reason that SCE&G and Santee Cooper decided to go forward. They thought they were going to need X amount of power, and they, if they didn't have the power plants, the new atomic energy facilities, they would not be able to supply their customers. That's right. When this idea got off the ground around uh, 2007, 2008, they were projecting that the usage of electricity was going to outstrip demand, certainly within 10 years, if not within five uh, and they were trying to find a way to ex- comfortably expand production. That was a very reasonable projection from their point, uh, from, from their standpoint. What happened, two things happened. First of all, the, the financial panic of 2008 slowed the economy and it slowed, therefore slowed the consumption of electricity for a couple of th- or three years. And probably even more important than that, the discovery of abundant natural gas supplies through the process of fracking and able to shift generating facilities to being funded with natural gas became a a much cheaper option than building a nuclear facility or actually in a much environmentally improvement over using coal. Natural gas, of course, has its own own environmental price. But that happened, and so then the need— for the electricity generated by these in-progress nuclear plants uh, diminished, and it just didn't make as much financial sense as it did before. And as as people who maybe kept up with this in the 2013-14 era, there were also some major construction problems that emerged, which you would have to have more expertise in that area than I do to figure out whose fault that was, but there were certainly some... uh, some major problems that emerged, and Westinghouse, who was the private contractor who has built nuclear plants all over the world, including China, pulled out and declared bankruptcy for for that wing. So, well, this is going to have an impact on not just Antique Cooper but the co-ops as well. Yes it it was it was a crisis all around. Uh, it was Santee Cooper's crisis directly, but indirectly because the electric cooperatives of South Carolina were, were buying 70 to 80% of their power from Santee Cooper. If Santee Cooper can't function or if they have to charge super high prices to pay off bad debt, uh, it's going to be a catastrophe for uh, the state's electric cooperatives. At the same time, tensions emerged between Santee Cooper and the electric cooperatives about some of the strategies they were pursuing, some of the decisions they'd made, so it, it was a period of tension, and that was a difficult period. It was it was a crisis period, and as we know, after much debate and much conversation, the state legislature seems to have decided that at least for now they're not going to sell Santee Cooper, and that probably will work out better in the long term for the cooperative-serving rural areas because otherwise they won't have anybody other than an investor-owned utility purchasing from three entities which consider themselves uh, competitors. The cooperatives were in favor of reform at Santee Cooper, the term you use throughout the, those mm-hmm. chapters. But they were having a problem in-house as well, uh, a, a PR problem, the Tri-County uh, cooperative mess, which became a call celeb. Uh, and actually, you're talking about democracy in action, <laughs> eventually. Yeah, the, the Tri-County uh, 
the Tri-County issues ultimately turned out to be, I think, a great thing for the electric cooperatives because it shows the power of their their model of the memberships controlling controlling things. What had happened particularly at Tri-County and probably a, a couple of other cooperatives is the people who, the local people who had been elected uh, to those boards got comfortable and they liked to add their friends to the board and, and things were not as transparent and open as uh, as they should have been. Some of the board members at Tri-County had been found to traveling a lot, paying themselves for very frequent board meetings and paying themselves pretty lavishly for those attending those meetings. And once it was exposed, I think the press played a key role in bringing it out. The membership at Tri-County was furious, and they voted those people out and voted their own people in. And this was an impressive uh, showing for a kind of a grassroots democracy among cooperative memberships. And I think it caught the attention. It crossed racial lines in a very racially mixed part of the state, crossed racial lines. It caught the eye of the legislature who really realized that these people took this into their own hands and righted a ship that was headed in, a, in the wrong direction. And, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Uh, no. <laughs> the, the folks who were being ousted uh, fought tooth and nail to keep what they had. Oh, yes, they did. It, it, was, it was a difficult situation. I think that the, uh, the CEO of the, trade, the Statewide Trade Association, Mike Cowick, said it best when he said it, it was the product uh, of an open ballot box and a free press. Uh, and those things, the, the inquiry of the press and the ability, when mobilized to solve the problem at the ballot box, saved the day there. Well, and, and it was interesting as this case evolved, um, the president or the chief operating officer of that of Tri-County, which is based out of, Saint, out of Calhoun County, yes. uh, and their attorney, John Felder, very much a part of the St. Matthews uh, Calhoun County establishment, were pretty much on the side of reform. They were on the side of reform. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. I think it's just one of those things that um, people are busy. Members don't always have of cooperatives don't always have as much time as, as they might need to take to monitor what their leadership is up to. But I think after that, both leadership and other electric cooperatives around the state have have taken strong measures to become more transparent and make it easier for people to know what they're doing. In fact, a lot of that's just posting things on the website so people can read them and know when you're meeting and know what you're deciding. And uh, well, People will do that. People are not going to take time to come to the meetings, but they'll, they'll go on the Internet and read about them. Well, Lacey, we need to pause again and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Lacey Ford about his book, Empowering Communities, How Electric Cooperatives Transformed Rural South Carolina. Lacey, on the heels of uh, our discussion of the Tri-County co-op situation, how does a cooperative operate? Let's talk about the, the fundamentals here. We talk about the members. Uh, who are the members and um, who are they electing and why? The members are the people who are served by the electric cooperative. They have regular meetings, uh, I think usually quarterly meetings, which are, are open to the public. Sometimes if there's an important issue, they're well attended. O- often the board just meets and acts. Uh, they elect uh, members of the board, and then there is a professional staff of various sizes, depending on the, on the size of the particular cooperative, who do most of the work. And it was very clear in the case of Tri-County, for example, that the professional staff was doing a good job. They can't really regulate the board as employees of the board, so that that's an obvious point. But their their staff, uh, they read meters, they collect money, they have service trucks. If you you drive by any cooperative, it it looks like uh, like the investor owned companies do. They have plenty of equipment now to to get to do what they did. Uh, many of them have some auxiliary things. They, they run a tra- credit union that members can come a part of. And there's a system of credits that uh, at the end of the year, you, get, you, can, you get, might get some money back if from a credit, or you can apply it to next year's bills or, or, or do other things with it. 
One of the most interesting things that they've done a number of interesting things, but one of them that's caught my attention is the so-called Operation Roundup. It has nothing to do with spraying yards with poison. Uh, is it asking members, this was came out of Beaufort County, and the general manager down there, uh, Tom Upshaw, uh, came up with the idea, if we just ask people to round up to the nearest dollar when they pay their bill, we would accumulate a fair amount of money that we could reinvest and needed causes here in the community, uh, basically charities, food bank, clothing banks, doing different things with it. And Operation Roundup got national attention. It's been imitated all over the country, and it's, it's, it's turned out to be a wonderful thing. And so, But that was initiated down in Beaufort County by the cooperative down there. But that's been a great thing that the cooperatives do. Uh, they also have big annual meetings, which usually uh, have some entertainment. Those used to be bigger things than they were now when they had cake baking and pie contest and those kinds of things. People are busier these days and don't always feel like devoting that much time on Saturday, but they still have those meetings. Uh, they still sponsor some competitions. In recent years, there's still a Washington Youth Program started back in the late 1960s where cooperatives from around the state send some representative uh, high school students to Washington, D.C. to see what go- how government works, and they usually meet with members of the South Carolina delegation. These got a good bit of uh, publicity at the time. There were the honor flights where the cooperatives decided that among their cooperative membership, there were a lot of World War II veterans who were in their later stages of their life. And... They organized flights to take them to Washington to see the nation's capital, to meet leading politicians from the state, to see the sites, and to be together and to share memories. Those were heavily subsidized by the electric cooperatives and were very meaningful, I think, to those veterans, uh, many of whom had not had that opportunity before and could not have afforded on their own to go back and do that. Clearly, the rate rate somebody pays, that's the where they get their most of their money. But, but if they need to do some more construction, new lines going in with the development, where do they, does their money still come from the federal government? Through the so far, yeah, so far there's still, still federal money. Uh, there have been, the Reagan administration tried to cut off uh, subsidy to the, to the electric co-ops, but ultimately they failed. It was scary there for a few years, but ultimately failed. And the funding has been pretty stable for a long time, so they still they still get some funding there as well. Well, as historians looking back to South Carolina in the 1930s and today, the difference is, again, it, it's only through photographs and through the written word that you can try to get back to that world without that unlit world, that dark world of pre-World War II South Carolina. And as you pointed out, when your dad came home to rural York County, they still didn't have electricity. It was well into the 1950s uh, that that folks got electricity. I, I remember as a young boy hearing local leaders and politicians talk about the need to bring people out of the dark, get them out of the mud, and get them into schools. And we have succeeded in getting them out of the dark. <laughs> uh, and we've succeeded in getting people in schools. We, we need to do a much better job there. There's no question about that. And the, the state of our, our, our roads is, is well known, and we did pass a bill to bond build very recently that should address that over time. But that is really an ongoing need that you can never neglect these days. People, you know, through hurricanes, we experience what a world is with, uh, without electricity. But just imagine no TV, no computer, no air conditioning. <laughs> in South- I mean, seriously, our 21st century world would be, would be quite different. If we didn't have air conditioning, you could scrub tourism. That's exactly right, Walter. Walter, I, I have to confess, and, and uh, my family would be quick to— say that this was true, that within about 90 seconds, when there's a brief power outage, I'm beside myself because the TV won't work, the computer won't work, can't open the refrigerator too much. Those 
That cuts me out of things that I do. <laughs> well, or if you if you weren't into your computer, if you were sitting there reading a book, you, you, all of a sudden you might. I have in the past during power outages uh, read by candlelight, but it's not the easiest thing on the eyes. If if it's if it's broad daylight and the power's out, I sit down and read a book. I, and but I, you know I'm a historian by trade, so that's something we need to do. But. Well. All you got to do is, is go through a hurricane. Uh, I can remember uh, Hugo and friends in the Low Country without power for weeks and weeks and weeks. And of course, not only no air conditioning, no electricity for lights, but then all the food goes bad in the freezer and the fridge. So, where would we be in South Carolina today without electricity? And a, it really is through the efforts of the electric co-ops that we saw the light. Yes, and the electric co-ops are doing one thing that's not as well known right now, uh, but it's happening all over the state, is they are helping bring uh, broadband internet to rural areas of South Carolina. Sometimes in partnership with local cable companies, I think that's the case up in York County, where the signal is transmitted through uh, the York Electric Co-op and the billing is handled by the local cable company. Or in other cases, uh, in Tri-County, which we mentioned earlier, and and particularly out in Mid-Carolina on the Lexington-Newberry side of Columbia, they run broadband through their facility and they have their own uh, billing mechanism. But you have to be a member of their electric co-op Well, to get it. given what we have over the past 18 months when schools were closed and had to do remote learning uh, and the fact that it was, it was difficult, again, particularly in rural areas, for students to have computer access. I think what we've been through, well, what we've been through recently had, has had large impacts in many areas, but it has alerted us to the fact that we desperately need to have uh, broadband internet in as many homes as we possibly can. Education suffered during that period, I think, and it would have suffered in part because there weren't enough rural connections. Lacey, I was fascinated by your comment earlier about folks describing the world without without electricity. Can you give us a few more examples? I, that, that's the, the sort of personal stories that really grab our listeners. I think that the most moving comment, I believe, was by a woman named Eunice Billards, who said that the the day the lights came on totally changed the way we lived. And, of course, it took time, a little bit of time for that to happen, but I think she was exactly right. One of the people we interviewed from my hometown of of, of Clover, South Carolina, talked about, as a kid, riding his bicycle into the movie, coming home and seeing that they were wrapping up, installing the electric line. They had, you know, of course, they had one light in the room. Some of you may remember that. So it was broad daylight, and the, he said he just ran right over and turned the switch because he wanted to see what the light would look like, even though it was broad daylight. Um, so people were excited. Others, others were, were very psychologically moved by it in the sense that they knew people in town who'd had electricity, and they felt like they had somehow become become equal to them. That they they had they now had access to what the, the town people had, and that it it really said it changed the way we f- we felt about who we are. And there was an individual uh, up in Lawrence who said he says I think a lot of people in my community felt inferior, and he says. And because we were in an inferior situation, we weren't. You know, we didn't have electricity, and other people did. So, and, and you know, and just the ability to see light at night. People talked about walking outside and seeing a neighbor with light on. It was was a different and amazing thing. You know? Well, and if you didn't have refrigeration, you had to you had to cook or prepare foods just for a, a certain amount of time. You couldn't. Put it in the freezer and save it for next week. Think, of, think, Walter, of all the modern conveniences that you couldn't have before you have. You couldn't have a refrigerator, couldn't have a washing machine, couldn't have an electric or gas stove. You know, you couldn't—life was tough. Life was hard. Uh, 
you had to you had to cut wood, you had to carry it in, you had to do that for baths, you had to do that for washing dishes, you had to do that for cooking. People had to cook on a wood stove in the summertime. You know, that's not a very pleasant thing. And one of the things, and even this is this this is a good point. Even the men we interviewed, not to mention the women we interviewed, said coming of electricity, although we all wanted it, it transformed the lives of women in these rural areas even more dramatically than it did the men because of the chores that had fallen to the women and the level of difficulty that they presented were now ameliorated to a great extent. Well, people get very romantic about, you know, what's wash day and what's ironing day, but, you know, stirring the pot, the, the wash pot over an open stove, open fire, uh, and then, as you say, wringing it out either by hand or if you had a hand wringer. Yes, and, and from, from a larger perspective, and as we know, uh, you and I know from South Carolina history, it was in the 1950s that uh, and accelerated some thereafter that women began to, to work outside the home more frequently. Uh, and that raised standards of living, and they were only able to do that because, frankly, most of those women still had to take care of those things in the household. But with electricity, they could do it at night and before they left in the morning. And that did raise the overall standard of living. It meant women were doing two kinds of work, but it raised the standard of living in South Carolina. Well, Lacey Ford, thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. I hope I have another occasion to do so. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. And the stories about the transformation of a dark world, pre-World War II South Carolina, described by Walford Professor Lewis Jones as a world lit only by fire, was all too true. But thanks to the New Deal, rural electrification, and the electric cooperatives, electricity and light came to rural South Carolinians over the course of 50 years. And it's all part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.